You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Robert Shear is the editor-in-chief of TruthDig.com, a 2007 Webby Award winner for the best political blog. He's a contributing editor to The Nation, a syndicated columnist based at the San Francisco Chronicle, and a host for Left, Right, and Center. His new book is The Pornography of Power, How Defense Hawks Hijacked 9-11 and Weakened America. Thank you for joining me, Robert. Well, one thing you talk about in this book, too, I think it's an interesting uh, perspective, is that we hear a lot about the revolving door between Congress and the lobbyists and going back and forth. What we don't hear a lot about, and what is, it pops up in this book again and again, is the revolving door between highly paid government employees and pseudo-government employees and uh, firms from whom they're seeking contracts. There's no visibility, as you point out, and no responsibility and no transparency between these highly paid employees, because they're not elected after all, and the, the firms, they go back and forth, and sometimes they work for the government and the firm at the same time. Well, that's what got that top procurement join, uh, got her in trouble because she actually was negotiating her deal with Lockheed and Boeing, pitting one against the other at the same time she was dealing with airplanes that they were submitting to, to the Air Force and making decisions. So that's why she ended up in the, the slammer. Uh, but, I, I, you know, the thing about it is... <laughs> You know, why are we, you know, this is kind of schleppy, two guys sitting here, we don't have a mass audience, you know, we're trying to figure this out. Why isn't, and you use the word transparency, why isn't this something observed in the mass media? Why isn't this something observed at the university in some kind of serious way? Just last night, I actually did find in the Government Accountability Office a, a more recent study of the revolving door. Doesn't break it down as precisely as I would like, but you know, stresses this is a really big and growing problem, not an old problem, a growing problem, and and it, it's it's really uh, interesting to me. Um, you know, I, I understand Boeing has been a sponsor for Meet the Press. Okay, I understand Lockheed and these people advertise widely. I understand money gets spread around, but I do not understand why there is not more journalistic curiosity about this. Why the easy acceptance of this is sort of an outdated issue, you know, and and the offering up of rationalizations for that, or like it's always going to be why it doesn't shock people. I mean, why is it doesn't shock people that this is not being discussed in this election? For all the talk of the long primary scene, we had we had Kucinich, Ron Paul on the Libertarian side, you know, a few people tried to raise this issue, but in the main, we're going through what everybody's uh, describing as a wonderful electoral experience and a refreshing uh, example of democracy, and and uh, the elephant in the room, which is how what we're doing to the rest of the world in terms of the weapons we're building and the danger we're creating and the resources we're wasting, and not not discussed. And everybody knows should Barack Obama come out for cutting the defense budget, he'd be destroyed. Destroyed. And by the very media, they would, they would say he's naive. They would say, oh, he, he blew it. They would t treat it as a baseball game or a football game handicapping. How many points did he lose with this? What, how many districts did he endanger? But the validity of that observation, you know, just as the validity of the observation that maybe wearing a lapel button with an American flag hardly honors the flag. You know, what is it? This has become, uh, you know, uh, a piece of jewelry. 
you know, and, and, and because it's required, it obviously lacks any meaning. You know, it's like sad thing you see a lot, in, in, you know, since 9-11 in Southern California, at least you have these uh, 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 immigrant workers having to have American flags flying from their car because they're afraid they'll be <laughs> marked. You know, I mean, I don't know why I'm laughing. It's very sad, you know, but, but you know, we, we, we use the flag as, you know, a protective shield. Well, that's sick. You know, it's absolutely sick. It's not showing any great love for the tradition of the country, you know. One thing you talk about in the chapter on Pearl is what I would describe as Batman politics. It's there's evil afoot in the world, and only one country can deal with it, Bat-merica. I like that one better than the last one you had about Christmas. That, that's a good one, and, and it is their view. It's the view of Pax Americana. And, and what gets wonderfully uh, mixed up in there is greed and idealism. So if you think that your country is the center of all decency in the world and the indispensable agent to progress in the human condition, which they believe, they really believe this, and, you know, uh, evidence to the contrary doesn't bother them at all. That those were just marginal mistakes or errors of the moment, you know. But in the main, no one can get it right in the world without our heavy-handed participation. And along with that is that our heavy-handed participation, even when it leads to massive military contracts and exploitation of resources and so forth, is always done for the highest of motives and never to line your pocket or anything. So they, they've, they've got this in their gut. And, I mean, they, that's why they feel no shame, you know. And it's interesting. If, if, I, if you were to, you know, if I were to take you out and I say, okay, I'll buy lunch. You know, given my journalistic background, I can't speak for you, there'd be a whole issue. No, I can't let you buy me lunch. We're doing an interview, and we have to be objective, right? We, we'd have some qualm about this. So did I let Sheer buy me lunch, or did I let, you know, blah, blah, blah. Is this corrupting me? You know, even if it's some cheap, you know, hamburger lunch somewhere, right? We, we, oh, think, sure. yeah. you know, we think about it, right? You know, or at least that's what I, my 30 years at the LA Times, this was convinced me. It was very important, you know, and so I never could let somebody buy me a beer or something like that. These people have no such qualm, no such qualm, unless they think they might get caught in something that doesn't look good. And so they can see all these things, and they don't want it observed. Uh, but that's only about getting caught. But they have no qualms because they are on the side of the angels. And so if Boeing decided to give me, Richard Pearl, $20 million for my venture capitalist firm, they're only doing that because it's a sound investment for their stockbrokers, stockholders. And, and, uh, and he's, that's what he fact said. It has nothing to do with influencing me and what I write or what I think or what I do on, on the defense board or anything else. You know? And they, they believe that, and they operate in a circle of people who confirm that. And then they red bait or, you know, what, Arab bait or Muslim bait or Islamo-fascist bait, anyone who dares take issue with them, you know? If you dare challenge what they do, they, they will shoot the messenger and say, no, you're just uh, you know, a self-hating Jew or you're an Islamo-fascist or you're a communist or you're this or you hate your country or, or something like that. You know? and, and they're very good at it. They're very good at intimidating. Why, why did the New York Times hire Crystal to be an op editor? Is it really a need for greater diversity on their op-ed page uh, or is that they uh, want to protect themselves against these attacks and, you know, uh, and so forth? And that's what they do. You know, uh, uh, they're, 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 these guys are great at scaring people, intimidating people, and they have strong allies in the bully boy 
chorus of you know the O'Reillys and the Rush Limbaugh's and the right wing radio talk guys, and uh, it works. They get away with it. It's not observed. And, you know, every once in a while they get sloppy and, you know, or you get some guy. I mean, look, this tanker deal, these people only went to jail because McCain can be a big pain in the neck. You know, McCain, if you cross him, he has a temper and he gets angry. And whatever first got him into this, he unleashed his staff to do what the staff is supposed to do. And Warner, who's a guy who had been around the block with this whole military-industrial thing, you know, been a service secretary and everything, he backed him. And he was the chair of the committee, and that's why the thing came unraveled, you know. On the other hand, you got a, a, I think I mentioned before, a Senator Boxer, one of the senators, Barbara Boxer, that I very much like. And, you know, she backs this C-17 cargo plane down here in Long Beach that has no reason for being uh, other than to, for jobs and money. And, and uh, again, she's not going to be examined on that or criticized, you know. She's just carrying water for what, the unions? So is that better than the company? She's actually carrying water for both the unions and the company. One thing I, I want to talk to you about is just the way you create... Can I just correct something you said before? Sure. You know, I didn't stand up at that Pacific Council at, to anger people. And I, I'm serious. Uh, I, as a journalist, I never really, you know, was belligerent in, the, in that way. Mm -hmm. uh, I uh, always try to keep my listening ears open. I actually went to that program thinking I would learn something. You know, because that's why I join. I pay out of my own pocket. You know, seven hundred fifty bucks a year or something. And the food is not that good. You know, and and uh, I'm giving up my time. And I and I respect Warren Christopher, who's the chair of our group. I think he's a good fellow, smart guy. And and so I go to these meetings fully expecting to learn something. Because most of the time I don't even get to ask a question. You know, and they're off the record very often, so I can't even get a good column out of it. And I go thinking, well, God, these guys are involved in whether whatever we're talking about. You know, what's going on with Egypt or what's happening in Thailand? You know, and I go to these things, you know, sometimes uh, a couple times a week. And I sometimes do learn things, you know. I won't say I don't ever learn. Uh, but I didn't stand up and ask that question uh, because I... Uh, wanted to be provocative, I asked the question because it's, a, to my mind, the most fundamental question faced by democratic society. Uh, do you have an informed public? And if the people in that room could be so easily um, misled as we were, right? If your major institutions like the New York Times could endorse by their reporting the war in Iraq and be so easily misled, then where is the value of the free press? You know, I believe in a free press. I believe in separation. I want to know why it's not working better. And as I say in this Pornography of Power book, I've come to the conclusion that a imperial government, uh, by which I mean extending its reach into foreign affairs, uh, you know, uh, in this way, uh, is incompatible with democracy. And by imperial government, I don't mean humanitarian concern for refugees. I don't mean trying to stop genocide when you do it in a multinational effort where it is genocide and where you're not grabbing the oil. I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm, I'm for being engaged in the world. I like to see a more bountiful wheat and rice crops. I care about what happens to people in the world. I've traveled very extensively in the world. I, I feel, you know, we're all human beings, and, and I like what Bill Gates is doing, eradicating whole illnesses and stuff like that. So I want to be engaged with the world. I just don't want to conquer it. One thing that, that interests me is just the manner in which you do your writing. Um, at, you, write, you write a daily column, yeah. and you also have uh, uh, this book-length 
uh, column, essentially. Uh, could you talk a little bit about the art of writing a polemic? How, how, do, you go about <laughs> <laughs> how do you go about constructing uh, a single column, and then could you talk about how you constructed this book? Well, first of all, you know, I didn't start out as a writer. I mean, uh, I uh, had a hard time in school. I have uh, pretty serious learning issues that were not described that way when I was growing up because we didn't have any learning difference thing. I, uh, by the way, give a lot of credit in my book to my son Josh, who did the heavy lifting on the research, Josh here. And uh, he has even more serious uh, dyslexic uh, learning problems than I do. He, he, but he did very well at USC and came in under a program at USC where we work with people who have a gap and you can do some things brilliantly and some things you don't do as well. In my case, I, because I could never learn, I can't write my name in cursive, I can only print, and I couldn't learn cursive, which was the way you had to write essays <laughs> in those days. It was required when I was in school and I could never learn foreign language. I can learn on the street a bit to, to get by, but I can never learn any form of sense. And I was having trouble with my organizing thoughts. I was always a good reader. So I, when I went into high school, I'd flunked every subject in the seventh, eighth grade. And anyway, to make a long story short, I was in the dummy class, and then I was taken to the genius class because they gave some kind of statewide exam, and which was totally quantitative. And as I say, I was a good reader, and I was very good at math and science. And so I was taken from what was considered the zoo, where we were supposed to be held until we were eight, or whatever the age was for being kicked out of school, and I was taken to the genius class where eight or ten kids sat around a table and with a nice teacher and talked about the world, and I didn't fit in in either one very well. So I, I only went to college because uh, a guy in uh, my high school, Christopher Columbus High School in the Bronx, R.B. Speed, who I assume was some kind of Republican, stern guy, had been a Commodore in the Navy, then took up teaching in retirement, and he never, you know, I never sat down with him or talked to him. There was no schmoozing, but he gave a quantitative test all the time in this earth science, which was the science for dummies, and I did real well, and then he got me to take physics and calculus and everything else, and he told me, look, kid, you're only going to go to college if you <laughs> go as an engineer because you're hopeless in these other things, and engineering didn't require a foreign language, and so I, I ended up, and I was actually in Colin Powell's class at City College, and, and in a class of 58, I just was at my 50th class reunion. He, he wasn't there, but he's been very supportive of the school. I have to give him that. And uh, anyway, while I was at City, and uh, uh, this is all fresh in my mind because I, I just spoke in Seattle, and another person I credited was a guy named Stanley Feingold who was a government teacher, and I snuck down to the other campus because we engineers didn't take that class, and I sat in on this guy's class, and anyway, I ended up switching over staying an extra year in school. And I was speaking in Seattle the other day, and this guy came up to me. It was Stanley Feingold. <laughs> He's now 82 years old. Same great, feisty, brilliant guy. And I spent a couple of days with him and his wife. And, and uh, you know, so in terms of my own style, it's, it's very different, I suppose, than everyone else's. And weren't now for the development of computers. And I first worked on my first computer, actually, in 1958-59 at Syracuse University. I was a Maxwell Fellow. And uh, I did w with the, my math and science and all that stuff, and that people wanted the math and economics and all that, so I was able to have a pretty good academic career after that transfer. And I worked on one of those first big computers, you know, took up a whole warehouse or something and did a study there on income inequality, actually. And so once computers came in where you could actually get your hands on one, 
the Display Writer, the Wang Three. I, w- I could then, my first book I did with a guy named Marie Zeitlin, who's a really terrific uh, scholar at UCLA. And Zeitlin, one day after I discussed this whole learning issue uh, in an article, a column, because Enos Cosby, Bill Cosby's son, had been killed in a robbery. And he had, was getting his doctorate in learning differences, and he had a serious learning. So it prompted me to come out of the closet and discuss my own issue. And uh, anyway, Zeitlin, then when I saw him later, he says, now I understand how we did that book, which is a book about U.S.-Cuban relations. Basically, you dictated your part, you know, and, which is true, because he could never read my handwriting. And it was before computers, and so I would write it out, scroll out all this stuff, and then kind of read it to him, and he'd type away, and that's how we did the book. And obviously, he had a lot of input of his own, and his ideas, and uh, so forth. But I couldn't really be a writer until, you know, computers came along. I mean, I would always try to have a girlfriend or a wife who was good with grammar and spelling. I mean, aside from their other great qualities, you know, I'm now ma- I've been married for 32 years to a terrific editor, Nardo Zucchino, who's my boss, really, at the LA Times and big editor at the Chronicle, San Francisco Chronicle. But, you know, uh, well, computers, it was really very, uh, really liberating. I mean, you have spell check. You can move paragraphs around. You can massage things. You can, you can and I've never without a computer. I, I got the first, you know, trash 80s, and I got the little scions, and I've always had one in my pocket for that reason. It's my crutch. And uh, so I, my writing style is very unorthodox. I'm very insecure. I wake up at 4 or 5 in the morning thinking I got it all wrong. I'm freaking out right now because I have to finish my column uh, and then I have to speak tonight, so I'm, I'm very nervous about it. Uh, but, and the only way I, I can keep doing it is I never underestimate the reader. I don't have an elitist view. I believe that anything you do should be, I mean, I, I, come fr- I was the first person to, to go to college on the, my father was a German Protestant, my mother was a Russian Jew. So on the German Protestant side of my family, I was the first one to go to college. And, uh, you know, my parents, who were garment workers, were very smart people, and they read. So I never had the idea that, you know, there's the elite and the others. I always assume, and I think it's stood me in good stead as a journalist, because I always assume anybody I'm interviewing in any situation, whether they're known or not known, or whether they're drunk or sober, uh, could have an insight that I could benefit from. So I've always loved that part of journalism. Even though I've interviewed all of these presidents or presidential candidates and everything, uh, I, I, nonetheless, I've done a lot of other kind of reporting, you know, about pedestrian safety or area codes, or whatever, you know, lots of issues, economic issues and so forth. And I never had that idea that anybody, you know, not necessarily the taxi driver, but anybody you run into might have a take on what's going on in any country uh, and not look at their credentials because very often their credentials get in the way of the truth. So anyway, I, in my own working, I have that idea, and that where, where I've taken the fear out of it is I just don't feel I'm obligated to come up with some kind of line about things, you know, if I get it wrong, then you admit it, and, you know, and, and move on, you know, or grow, grow, you know, and uh, I'm only surprised that I've gotten it now, I'll brag here, but I mean, I'm, I'm surprised that I've gotten it as right as often as I have. Well, you were certainly uh, prescient with your uh, pre-9-11 column. You wrote in March that we should be looking out for, March 2001, yeah. that we should be looking out for yeah. Bin Laden. And, and I get slammed comments. all over the Internet for it, too. You know, um, <laughs> I don't get praised for it. <laughs> you know, uh, but yes, I, I, you know, it's funny. And Okay, now I didn't come to that. This You're referring to an article I wrote uh, six months before 9-11, and I blasted 
Colin Powell and the Bush administration for giving aid. And one of the ways people criticize me, well, the aid was given through the UN. Okay, yes, the aid was given through the UN, but it was a reward to the Taliban for its claim to be holding down the uh, opium crop, which we now know with the opium crop being enormous, in fact, twice the world demand. I just was reading figures last night. Uh, uh, you know, they have so much in their warehouse, they don't know what to do with it. No one even knows where these warehouses are. And it's supplying the, the uh, Taliban with at least 100 million a year is the latest estimate by the UN. So, you know, Afghanistan is, of course, the major producer of opium. And, and I don't think the Taliban in their puritanical selves really were interested in cutting it out, as they've shown. They're, they're the major traffickers in this stuff. But they made a show of cutting down on it, and, and the, uh, the Bush administration sought to reward them, and the reward was this uh, $43 million or whatever it was that was given to them, and Christina Rocco, who was the assistant secretary of state for that area, you know, praised them, met with the leader of Al and actually met with them a few, very close to 9-11, I think it was the week before 9-11 in, in uh, Pakistan, met, met with the Taliban ambassador to Pakistan, and once again congratulated them on their good work. So our focus, the U.S. government's focus, was clearly on w the drug war. That was the big thing of the Bush administration when it came in. It was not terrorism. And, uh, you know, the, this drug war. And, and, and I was upset about this, uh, not because I have any great sources of information, other than the Foundation for a Feminist Majority, which is actually the publisher of Ms. Magazine. And, and uh, Peg Yorkin and these people over there, you know, uh, they were hell on wheels for about five, six years about what the Taliban was doing to women and girls. And they actually smuggled in reporters and, you know, did documentaries on it. Uh, and uh, and so forth. They did one the uh, behind the shroud, the shroud, something like that. I mean, they did some really good work. And I went to some of their meetings, and there were pickets outside blasting them, you know, from the, you know, uh, pro Taliban or what have you. And so um, <laughs> I, I was influenced by these people about what was going on in Afghanistan. And so when I saw that the U.S. government was was giving money to these people, I thought it was appalling, and I pointed out these are the people who were behind the actual, you know, they were sponsors of, of al-Qaeda, they were harboring these people who had actually attacked Americans and so forth, and so I criticized the Bush administration for it. And you got all these smart asses on the internet, you know, there's this, you know, some of these people, they, oh, Shear's got it wrong, the money was not given directly to the Taliban, it was given through the UN or something like that, it makes a big goddamn difference, you know, so. But, uh, you know, uh, yeah, I got it right. I don't get any credit for it. But then that was before 9-11, yeah. And, but I got a lot of other things right. You know, that's what drives me nuts about this. I mean, what was the, it was not just me. I mean, tens of millions of people got Iraq right, and tens of millions of people more around the world got Vietnam right. You know, uh, it's not like, you know, there aren't a lot of people. You know, I, I mean, I got off the BART station uh, here in, in Berkeley and the, before the, the night before the Iraq invasion, and the whole place was crowded of protesters at every station and the churches uh, saying, don't go to war in Iraq. It's not justified, and the UN observers are there. And, you know, so I don't want to put myself up, but in the journalist class, I am exceptional. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I am, uh, on a number of things. You know, I got the New York Times uh, hounding Wen Holy, the scientist from Los Alamos. I wrote 19 columns at least for the LA Times blasting that whole thing. The guy ends up nine months in solitary confinement and then gets cut loose by a Reagan-appointed judge who apologizes to him on behalf of the government and the American people. That was a, a, a manufactured 
uh, story fed by Christopher Cox, who's now head of the Security Exchange Commission, was a right-wing congressman from Orange County, California. New York Times just went to, m- m- went to town with that story, uh, claiming it's investigative journalism. They smear this guy. He ends up they pressure the government to to bust him, and the guy is uh, held for nine months uh, under light. He's videoed every time he goes to the bathroom in his cell. Uh, like just terrible stuff. So, yeah, I got that one right, and they got it wrong. Maybe that's why they don't want to review my book. I don't know. Well, know. now— And I say, I say that, by the way, not in a cavalier way. I don't know what makes these institutions tick. I worked at the LA Times for over 30 years, and I really don't know that much about how the play— You know why? It's like working in the Kremlin. And people work at a big journalistic enterprise— they sail out of that building, and they are loaded for bear. They'll take on CEOs. They'll take on heads of state. They'll take on dictators. Uh, many of them are quite brave. They'll go into war zones and so forth. They'll, they'll, they'll be quite courageous. Uh, many of them are very bright. Many of them get it right uh, very often. In their own building, they're like church mice. You know, uh, Particularly in the period before now, we have a lot of turmoil in, in, the, in the mainstream print media and, and commercial television, so now there's a lot of questioning. What does this guy want? What's, who's the new owner and what's happening? But I'm talking about that period of when I spent the 29 years at the LA Times. You didn't have any serious examination of how our organization worked, why we were doing these things, you know? Uh, uh, no transparency. No, no. So they, they never, and if they knew it, which they did, they certainly gossiped about it over drinks and everything. You know, why is this one made an editor, and why did we not have that editorial, and why did we kill that story? But it never was revealed to the public, or very rarely, very rarely uh, revealed to the public, and certainly never with a real name attached to it. It was always done anonymously. But the people did not break ranks and speak out. Very rare. You had people like Henry Weinstein, one of my heroes, Bill Boyarsky. I mean, these guys, are, we've had some really great journalists at the LA Times when I've been there. And these guys did take risks and speak out. But they were exceptional. I have to ask you about an uh, incident that occurred last week when uh, Israel did a test run for yeah. bombing uh, the nuclear facilities in Iran. Tell me, what do you think is behind that, and where do you think that's going to lead us in the next six to ten months? Well, uh, again, in this chapter that the Chronicle, I hate to have sour grapes, but they particularly seem to dismiss my Israel chapter, uh, I made the point there that with friends, because this is a common theory, right, that we had the Mirsham book, you know, with the Israel lobby and APAC and got us into Iraq, and this is if you go on the Internet or our website, we actually get a lot of angry emails, sometimes even anti-Semitic emails, saying you're leaving out Israel and Israel's responsible for everything and this war was nothing for Israel. And the point I make in my chapter is, with, first of all, with friends like the neoconservatives, Israel doesn't need enemies. I mean, it's objectively put Israel in a very uh, weak uh, position. And, uh, you know, uh, I think Israel is torn. Israelis are torn. Uh, you have different factions. So one of the things I like about the reading the Israeli press and following it is that you can get a lot of more insight there than you can reading the American press about Israel, that there is pretty lively debate. And, um, you know, uh, we run this mosaic from Link TV, your stuff on Truth Dig is very good. You know, Chris Hedges, Fisk, uh, Robert Fisk, these people, Patrick Coburn, are right for us. They often refer to uh, Scott Ritter, they often refer to the Israeli press. So I think there's a, a, a lively debate in Israel and real sense of alarm of, of their alienation from the world around them and the rise in power. Of, forget about the nuclear thing, just the rise in power of Iran. 
and, and of religious fundamentalism in the region, and that the U.S. policy has stoked this. And I think in response to that is why Omar has made this overture to Syria, to uh, Lebanon, to, to Hezbollah, to Hamas, where you now have a, a truce uh, with Hamas. I think they just broke it this morning. Oh, they did? Yeah, what happened? I, somebody, uh, I know there was an attack in the West Bank. I didn't know the Gaza truce got broken. Uh, I think they just uh, sent mortars back over, and uh, I think I heard it. Oh, well, there you go. So they didn't last. But uh, the very fact that Israel would even make would make that step and go is shows a, a real concern about um, not using military options that are self-defeating and make you more insecure. I happened to go to Israel and Egypt at the time, just at the end of the uh, Six-Day War, and I remember the Israelis, uh, Alon and Diane, I interviewed some of these people, and telling me, you know, that we're gonna, they didn't think they are going to hold this land. They didn't see themselves as occupiers. They thought, you know, we'll improve the plumbing and work things out. At least that's what they said, and get out. You know, the idea that you can occupy another people and remain a healthy society is, a, you know, it's a contradiction in terms. You can't. And so, uh, you know, um, uh, it's a tragedy, and I think, uh, I think Israel is thrashing about between different options, and certainly one is the military punch, you know, which would be incredibly counterproductive. I can't imagine anything, just looking at it from Israeli security point of view, I think attacking Iran, a country with three times the population of Iraq, with, you know, very strong nationalist feelings. Uh, be a, a, a disaster from which you will never, Israel would never recover, never recover. So I don't know what that was about. I don't know whether that was an attempt to push the administration to be, Bush administration to be more aggressive because they're very worried that with the end of the uh, Bush administration, the administration might not be quite so hawkish. And this is an uh, occasion where maybe you want to push Bush into doing something stupid. There are people, obviously, on the Israeli side who believe that. There are other people who oppose that. I think Omar is, at this point, torn between the two. He's in a weak position because of his own corruption cases and so forth. So I, I really can't answer that. Robert, tell me a little bit about uh, Truth Dig. You talked about the Internet as uh, the different voices on the Internet. You're one of them. Yeah, I like the Internet, and I like the fact that, you know, uh, uh, we can— get the word out there without cutting down too many trees or anything like that. I mean, I like the technology, and as long as someone doesn't mess it up, you know, with government control or something, right now, it's the Wild West. And, you know, when we get good pieces by someone right today, we have a very strong piece by Chris Hedges. I'm very proud of, of running it. And uh, it's basically about the whole failure of the media and how they're all, you know, really lackeys for the, for the uh, government. And I noticed, I just went online before, and it's being picked up all over the world, you know, and we don't charge anybody. They all steal it anyway if you try to charge us. So, you know, everybody's got it, you know, alternate common dreams, and, you know, nation links to it, but not just them, Huffington Post, and then around the world, in Ireland, you know, Germany, and everybody, people go to it. So I find that quite thrilling. Uh, here's Chris Hedges, who was the New York Times bureau chief for eight years and, you know, knows more about the Mideast probably than any, I don't know why I said probably, than any... American reporter, uh, and uh, we're able to give him this megaphone. If we have something good, we put it on our site, we broadcast it, we let everybody out there know we have it, we send it out, and we can find a massive audience. You know, we've had uh, 20 million, we've been visited 20 million times in, in a little over two years, and we can do that. On the other hand, we're not prisoners of these numbers. We, we published, you know, I hate to put her down, I love her, uh, she's a great writer, but we have 
Bemi Ojabamaji, I can never pronounce her name, but she's written five important pieces on Africa. She's a Nigerian reporter of 22 years' experience. And we don't get massive readership for that, but I'm going to still keep running it because, you know, we got to know what's going on in Africa, and you certainly got to know what's going on in Nigeria, which is, you know, a good chunk of Africa. And she's particularly strong on challenging the stereotypes as just starving kids with flies buzzing around them, and she gets into some of the complexity and what's important other than that. And so I, I'm very up on the on the Internet. I know all of its failings. I'm attacked routinely on the Internet. You know, I, uh, if I... Do you participate in discussions on the internet? I just did this morning. I, uh, there's a new group, the Progressive Book Club or something, and I and they, there was a discussion actually about my book, and and so I I got into it and see where it goes, but no, I wouldn't say I do a lot of that. No, I don't. I don't do the blogging. I don't do the. I don't read the comments very often because um, you know a lot of times. I mean, I, w I really didn't even want to have all the comments on our site, but everybody said you can't have a site. And I, I don't have that much to do with running our site. We have a great publisher, Wade Kaufman, who I, I really respect. She, it looks beautiful. It's yeah, very she, readable. It's really nice. And she's just terrific, and she's very principled. I mean, she you know, did her master's work at, at SC. She worked with me on my local column, and, and you know, uh, she was, I don't want to define her politics, you know, she's got relatives in Israel, she was more pro-Hillary maybe than the site ended up being, but she really has a very, very strong sense of the independence of the site, and when we started it, it wasn't going to be her site, it wasn't going to be the Zwei Kaufman Post or Report, and it wasn't going to be the Bob Shear or Robert Shear site. I, I turned, uh, for our first big dig on Tuesday, I turned to Orville Schell, who was then the dean of the journalism school at, at Berkeley. I don't agree with Orville on everything about China. We have our disagreements. I've had them over the years, but I figure I, I do believe Orville knows about as much about China as any other American uh, academic journalist. And uh, so he wrote our big piece. I turned to Mark Hooper, a journalist I respect, to write about uh, Venezuela, even though I knew I wouldn't agree with it all. I'm, I'm much more uh, favorable towards Chavez than Cooper is. I think we've run two pieces by him, big pieces. So I want the site, you know, short of people being homophobic, anti-Semitic, racist, or something like that, uh, I want the site to have a pretty broad spectrum. Progressive, but I've run, you know, the guy who's the right on our show, left, right, and center, Tony Blankley. I've run a couple of his pieces when I think they're good, you know. But in the main, what I've done is, uh, I, don't, I don't run the site. I write my column, and uh, my son, who's 26 years old, one of my sons, Peter Shear, is the managing editor, and he doesn't listen to me. I can't even get him to give me the banner space for my book ad. You know, he's very independent. He's very smart. He's a great journalist. Akasha Anderson, who was getting her doctorate at USC, is very bright. She had been with the Daily News for a long time. She's been on the she was on the internet as a film reviewer and other things before. And she's the associate editor, runs most of the cultural book section. We have a very strong book section, which Steve Wasserman is putting together. He was the book editor of the LA Times, and our feeling is that books are, are getting short shrift in, in the old newspapers now. They're cutting back their space, and some don't even have book review. Well, we have a Friday book review that Steve Wasserman runs, and I'll give you an example. We had Chalmers Johnson reviewed a book by Sheldon Wolin, uh, another ex-Berkeley professor on democracy. It's a very good book, and Chalmers Johnson is a brilliant fellow. And that book was at 350,000 on the Amazon ranking. We got a great email from Princeton University Press. <laughs> and after Chalmers Johnson Review, it went up to 500. And they, Princeton, they told us in this email, they got 100 requests for review copies and interviews with the author. And so we were able to give that book some life with a, a good book review section. 
So, <clears throat> you know, we, we, it's basically a site put out by, by these people, uh, by Zoe Kaufman, by Kajianis, and by Peter Scheer. I don't meddle in it. They don't listen to me very often. I try to influence. I send emails all the time, but they don't go anywhere. <laughs> uh, but that's okay. I think that's the great thing. I think the internet should be a younger person's game. I do believe that. And uh, they are younger. And I think it should be pretty open. They like the common stuff or they figure it all out. So I'm, I, I'm not overruling anybody. I'm, not that I have the power. What I like about it, and when I lost my column at the LA Times, and I've been at the LA Times in a, in a good, very good relationship for 29 years, I qu quoted A.J. Liebling, the media critic, uh, I said, you know, freedom of the press is guaranteed only to those who own one. I now own part of one. I own 50% of one. And, uh, you know, uh, as long as we keep within our budget and, you know, don't go crazy here, we uh, don't have to listen to any, any big investors, venture capitalists. Uh, you know, we're not out there getting the big bucks and then giving up our uh, identity. Um, our publishers, Wade Calvin, is very clear on that. We want to control this enterprise so that it is something we respect, and that's what we're doing. We've been speaking with Robert Shearer. His new book is The Pornography of Power, How Defense Hawks Hijacked 9-11 and Weakened America. He's the editor-in-chief of truthjig.com. Thank you for joining me, Robert. Thanks, sir. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. <laughs>